The General Assembly is set to return, and a Tennessee congressman has a series of stock trades during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of May 25th. I'm Joel Ebert. All right, so I know what you're thinking. It's been a little bit under two months since our last podcast. Well, today I don't have Natalie with me. Her chair is absent because she's on furlough. I've had to go through some furloughs myself. Um, next week is, or this week that I'm recording for is, uh, the beginning of a holiday week. So we wouldn't have the opportunity to record on Monday. So instead I'm recording this on the preceding Friday to set up the return of the state legislature. Lawmakers this week are set to return. The house is mostly going to have its committee meetings throughout the week. The Senate is limiting itself to just one meeting on Thursday that will be focused on the state budget. All of that will be discussed a little bit later on in the episode with uh, two two guests that we had to pipe in. Uh, so please forgive uh, the technical sound of it. Um, they were phone calls recorded from one cell phone to another uh, with Senator Bo Watson and Representative Ron Gant. Uh, on those phone calls, we largely discuss what the session might look like, what the task it had will be. Um, as of right now, there will be or there are significant disagreements between the House and the Senate on a number of issues related to uh, the upcoming session. Those range from subject matter. Uh, the House wants to expand into pretty much any subject that members want. You, you've seen bills such as the most controversial ones, Governor Bill Lee's abortion and uh, uh, permitless carry bills up for uh, calendar uh, this week. Uh, we've also seen um, Representative Jerry Sexton's bill to make the uh, Holy Bible the state official book. Uh, that has been calendared for Janu- or June 1 when lawmakers will have their first floor session. Uh, another uh, thing that the Senate wants to do is largely focused on uh, just COVID-related uh, measures or budget-related measures or uh, just, you know, you're running the mill appointments. So you've got a, a, a wide different view on how this session uh, should be run. Um, the two chambers disagree on the length of the session. Uh, obviously, the Senate has one meeting this week. The, the House has 20-some committee meetings with 391 bills, which really speaks to um, the volume that they believe they can get done in a very short uh, window of time. Uh, And another significant disagreement, and this may change by the time this podcast comes out, the House wants to allow uh, the public, members of the public, limited, though, uh, into the Cordell Hall building while the Senate does not. It's going to make for an interesting sight. Either way, uh, we will be there, both Natalie and I. We uh, have a a couple of weeks where we don't have to uh, take a furlough unpaid um, for a week. So we will be covering the session in earnest, uh, and we hope to have regular editions of this podcast. But before those interviews with uh, Representative Gant and, and Senator Watson, I wanted to talk a little bit about a story I've been working on for a little more than a month now. It's an unusual one. Uh, It it, it really got started after um, Senator Richard Burr uh, was in the headlines, and it was related to his congressional stock trades. 
essentially these are are, uh, activities that are now mandatory to uh, be reported uh, that show financial activity that you may have related to your um, your stocks, your stock portfolio. Um, Burr was found to have had a flurry of uh, transactions before the coronavirus really kind of hit uh, full steam and has faced significant scrutiny, uh, including most recently um, reportedly having his cell phone subpoenaed, uh, which ultimately has led to him stepping down from his committee chairmanship. There have been a lot of other lawmakers who have made headlines. Um, This time, uh, I have a story coming out today, I believe, uh, on Representative and Congressman Phil Rowe, who had similar um, heightened activity this year related to his stock trading. So, for example, there were, in 2019, in all of uh, that year, uh, Congressman Rowe had 846 transactions involving 277 or so assets uh, valued at between $4.6 million and $21.8 million. You can't get an exact range or value of these uh, trades because they report them in ranges. So you generally report between having one and fifteen thousand dollars uh, worth of, or one thousand and fifteen thousand dollars worth of stock, fifteen thousand and one and fifty thousand dollars in stock, and so on. You just do a little check mark on this. So again, two thousand nineteen. Uh, Roe has 846 transactions, 277 assets, 4.6 to $21.8 million worth of value. In the first three months of this year, he had 680 transactions, 300 plus assets, and $4 million to $18.4 million in value. That means that he had almost as much as all of last year in just this year's uh, early months. These reports are found on Congress's website, specifically the House Clerk's website. After the Burr story started to come out, I th- started to think, hey, I should be looking at Tennessee's congressman. Th- I found all the filings. Most members of the Tennessee delegation, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, you've got Tim Burchett, who had uh, one transactions unlo- uh, transaction unloading his stock in Denny's. Uh, You've had others like uh, Chuck Fleischman, who had a a handful. Um, uh, Several members did not file anything right now. Uh, Other members have asked for extensions, including uh, Roe, who hasn't reported any transactions since April 2nd, but that's because he asked in mid-April for an extension to report his latest transactions. So we're going to get a clearer picture from pretty much all of the delegation in August about their financial transactions. But of the reports that I was able to see, Phil Rowe had the way more than anybody else. Again, 600 some odd transactions. So I took all these reports, which are manually put up on uh, the congressional website. They're all in PDFs. And I hand type them into Excel, uh, double and triple check my work as I was going along. And I just started doing some number crunching. And then eventually I could see um, unusual patterns that raised some eyebrows to some experts who I talked to. One of them was a decision on March 6th uh, that Phil Rowe or his, his uh, asset manager, his, his um, spokesman, 
told me that he uses a um, portfolio manager, essentially a stockbroker, somebody that trades on his behalf. So he, uh, you know, does not initiate these decisions. That, uh, however, does not mean that he doesn't have any any involvement or cannot offer any advice to his portfolio manager. I asked that question of his spokesman and did not get an answer. So on March 6th, uh, Roe sold stock in about 60 companies. Um, the A couple of days later, March 9th, he sold stock in a, a, a couple of more, about 40. Those two days, uh, almost 100, um, you know, Trades all sales one purchase for for um, uh, a stock and I believe it was a natural gas company led to um, you know him sort of having the ability to sell off before a massive uh, downturn in the uh, stock market by March 18th and March 23rd some of these stocks that he sold uh, which were in Disney and Royal Caribbean and other companies hit rock bottom. Now, that's not to say that there weren't early signs, right, that the coronavirus was coming. Of course, everybody knew that the coronavirus was on its way. But the question really becomes, did Congressman Roe have any inside knowledge uh, that he later then encouraged his portfolio manager to act on, right? So if he found out stuff during his official capacity in congressional briefings, of which he may have participated, he didn't answer my questions on that, but there were congressional briefings provided to several members, if not all members of Congress. Um, if he had used that information, that would be problematic for him, as Richard Burr has seen, as other um, members of Congress have also apparently been investigated for. There was also an interesting uh, decision that Roe made when he appeared on Fox Business on March 12th. At that time, uh, he had said he'd just gotten done with a briefing with Dr. Anthony Fauci of the NIH. And at one point in the interview, he said uh, the name of a company called Gilead Sciences. Gilead Sciences is one of several that Roe had money and, and, and stock in that are working on a coronavirus vaccine. Another one is called Moderna. That stock has just uh, uh, gone crazy. And most recently, because they said that their first human trials were a success in a coronavirus vaccine. Um Several of the companies that Roe invested in early on during the pandemic uh, were companies that ended up working on uh, vaccines and testing related to COVID-19. Again, we don't know why he bought those companies. What we do know is that several of those were different than investments he made in the previous year in 2019. In 2019, he made several purchases for bonds and municipal, uh, you know, stocks. Uh, he did not make similar purchases this year. This year, he bought things like Zoom, uh, Amazon, Wayfair, Carvana, a lot of online-based technology um, uh, companies. He bought uh, stock in those early on and throughout the year. And again, it, none of this is is criminal. None of this is is illegal. These disclosures, though, uh, raise the question of, again, was the congressman in possession of, of knowledge before the public that he later then uh, was able to um, use for his stock portfolio? We don't know the answer to that question, but uh, the only people that really could find out 
would be investigators. That's what's going on right now with Richard Burr. That's what's going on with others, uh, where the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission are looking through documents, uh, conversations, interviewing people to find out was there sort of a inside trading activity that went what went on. But again, go back to the March 12th uh, Fox News interview, again, on Fox Business. At one point, um, Roe mentions Gilead Sciences. At the time, he had between $16,000 and $65,000 worth of stock in uh, Gilead Sciences. It's unclear why he chose that particular company to mention uh, there were several others and are several others that he's that are working on vaccines. But uh, again, he did not disclose in that interview that he had stock in that company. All this to say, it was a laborious process to go through this. Um, I will uh, continue to look at some of these filings as they come out later this year. Um, there were uh, times where I got frustrated. I, I uh, you know, lost uh, one of my uh, documents at one point mid-reporting and probably lost a, a couple hours worth of work. Um, but nonetheless, uh, just doing this, this number crunching and this data and, and finding this out has led some experts uh, who I have quoted in a story that you can now read online uh, to really question, again, um, the series of transactions, the frequency and the types of transactions that Congressman Rowe um, had made in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, for the story, you're going to have to go to our website. Uh, the congressman did not respond or his spokesman to a majority of my questions and simply said that the congressman uses a stock uh, trader or a portfolio manager. Here's my interview with Representative Ron Gant. First of all, pretty much just wanted to get a sense of lawmakers in the House are going to start returning next week. And, um, you know, talk us through what is that going to look like? How are things going to be different? And what will the week uh, portend? Well, I think uh, Tuesday, as we go back to Nashville, I think you're going to have the committee structure in place where we have our committees that will obviously be operating and uh, hearing bills that members have. And I, I think that uh, a lot of the members obviously were sent there, you know, from their districts uh, all across Tennessee. And and every dis dis district obviously has unique uh, needs. And, and as you look at different legislators that are presenting uh, different types of uh, bills that they had, you know, in our uh, current uh, General Assembly, you know, this is the last chance that they have before uh, going into the uh, uh, summer and fall elections that they have to uh, push that final voice that they have for their district. And I think it's imperative that, you know, our members uh, be able to carry that voice out throughout this committee process. And hopefully, uh, you know, <clears throat> based on what I'm hearing, I think a lot of members are eager to uh, continue to push uh, their legislation. I, I guess one of the questions is, um, you know, this is an unusual time. The legislature is going to have to come back in and dramatically scale back the budget even more than what was done in March. Um, that will be a lot of work. 
Uh, but there is also the the House has calendared hundreds of bills right now. Um, among them are some of the most controversial of the year. You've got the governor's uh, permitless carry bill, uh, the governor's abortion bill. Um, why is now the right time to consider those things rather than just drilling down on the budget? Well, part of that process is going to be leadership um you know, sitting down with the governor and his team and and talking to the uh, people that have their eyes on, you know, the uh, the money that's not continued to come in that we've been used to see come in as far as revenue dollars. And we've got to figure out what actually makes sense because obviously, you know, we call ourselves uh, fiscal conservatives and we've got to take a prudent approach to that and and yes, we're all for, um, you know, Republicans, you know, stand for gun legislation that, you know, obviously makes sense. You know, we're pro-life, um, you know, that's part of our <clears throat> platform. And, and you know, we're going to be for those issues. Uh, but like you said, this is a unique situation and it brings, it brings forth um, a balance that we're going to have to look at, you know, when it comes to our, our budget. I mean, a lot of these not just these pieces of legislation that you just mentioned, but, you know, I had, you know, some, as you know, some tax cut legislation on franchise and excise tax, uh, the privilege tax to cut, you know, those taxes. And, you know, is now the right time to, um, to take those forward? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, we've got to look at all these options and, and I would tell you that anything that has a fiscal note, you know, as a member of the finance committee, that I sit on, you know, we're going to be looking at all of this, but, but the people that I'm going to be looking to are the people, um, uh, in our, you know, finance department, you know, with the state of Tennessee that are getting all the data in as far as what are they going to forecast, you know, going forward for the next six to 12 months. Um, you know, those are the numbers that I want to look at and, and kind of dissect and, and really have these, you know, uh, conversations that are, you know, straightforward and not sugar-coated or anything like that. I mean, we need to know where we stand and what, what is the forecast. And if we pass these pieces of legislation, how are we going to pay for it? And, you know, so we, we've got to have the right balance. And, and yes, let me, let me just reiterate that, yes, we are for certain. Republicans are for certain pieces of gun legislation. We're pro-life. And we're for tax cuts. But as we enter this unique situation, you know, I think we have to have a common sense approach to it that we have to look and see and ask ourselves what makes sense in this situation. I, I guess, though, to press you on that a little bit further, you know, why calendar some of these things? Is it is it um, symbolic more than anything else uh, that the Senate has no intention to take up? Some of the uh, uh, bills that the House has outlined, it, it appears right now, uh, there's 391 bills on calendar in the House's first week in action and just 34 in the Senate's first week. Um, why why press ahead on, on some of these that you know are just going to sort of die on the vine? Well, you know, Joe, as I said, I, I mean, Joe, I mean, th- this is going to be part of that discussion. And there's going to be ha- we're going to have to have some hard conversations about uh, about these issues that are you know uh, crucial to uh, 
a lot of members, um, and a lot of members are very passionate about these uh, issues, as I as I am. But we have to have a common sense approach during this time, and we always have to remember that we're not going to always be in this what I call a U-shaped recovery. I think that you're going to see our economy bounce back better than we've ever seen before. But during this time when we're in that U-shape, the bottom of that U-shape recovery, you know, I think we've got to do what makes financial sense, you know, during that time. And part of our committee structure is to have these conversations and hopefully we can come to a common sense agreement and approach that, you know, that makes sense for Tennesseans to see what we do and understand. A couple last things. I know you've got to run. Um, How long in your mind does the session last? Um, What is Senate or house leadership talked about? What's an an end date or uh, a total time? You know, I I think that that's probably an open ended question at this point. Um, You know, I forecast that we could be there from, two to four weeks, uh, depending on, you know, how fast we move and, you know, how much we can agree with the Senate and our colleagues over there. I I think they're working uh, with our, I mean, I know Randy McNally, our lieutenant governor, is working with our speaker over in the House, and, you know, they're working towards, you know, agreements and working out things uh, every day. I mean, I think they're having conversations, and this is not an easy time for either one of those guys, and, and they are the good thing is that those guys are working together. Uh, and are we always going to agree on everything? No, we're not always going to agree. But I think that both of those leaders are respectful to one another and they lead in very respectful ways and they complement each other. They've all, we've seen it in this back in January and February. Uh, they've worked well together and we've worked well with our governor and we're going to continue to do that. And we're going to, you know, obviously have disagreements here or there, but I think for the most part, we'll come through this. Uh, we'll work out our disagreements and we'll move forward in a positive way. And then just to clarify, two to four weeks, does that include this uh, this coming week? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. And then last question, uh, there's been a lot of dis- discussion, debate. I don't know that it's been settled. Uh, will the public be allowed in for the House side uh, starting uh, next week? Well, from my leadership conversations with uh, the speaker and and other members of leadership is that the House is planning to let the public in on the House side. I can't speak for the Senate at this point. Again, I know Lieutenant Governor McNally and Speaker Sexton are having conversations. But the House, I think we do at this point, we plan to allow the – public in on the house side and, and what's the the thinking behind that I, I i mean some people would say that you're putting um members staff and others at risk of uh exacerbating the the virus spread um why do you think it's necessary to have the public there even in a well, limited capacity sure i understand well you know after all i mean this is actually the people's house and i think we have to be smart and prudent in the approach as we let people back into the, uh, into the, uh, Cordell Hall building. But I think as we take proper measures like everybody else in the private sector is taking at this time, you know, we're going to take temperature checks as people come into the building. You know, we're going to, uh, look at the occupancy rates and we're going to limit, you know, people in committee rooms to be spaced out apart from each other and limit the capacity and, 
that people are congregating in these committee rooms. Uh, we put plexiglass up for members, you know, to obviously not spread, you know, this. And I think it's permissive for people, and we're asking members to um, consider wearing masks when they're in the common areas outside their offices. Um, and I think that's going to be the approach is that we encourage people, you know, to, to continue to wear those masks uh, when they're in the common areas of the um, of the building. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Leader Gant, and thank you very much. See you next week. Joe, thank you so much. Good to be with you. You too. Bye-bye. And here's my discussion with Senator Bo Watson, the Senate Finance Committee chairman. First off, thank you for for making the time and talking to me. Um, You know, take us through next week. It looks like the Senate is going to have one meeting. It's going to be your committee. Uh, You're going to hear from Butch Ely. And uh, what's going to be the majority of your focus uh, at least for that committee. Hey, the the finance, Senate Finance that will meet next Thursday is going to focus on the um, a report really from uh, Butch Ely and Finance and Administration and the Budget Office to give us a uh, up to date uh, where we stand, at least where we think we stand um, in terms of revenues. And then I expect there to be some discussion about the strategies that they may be considering to present to us uh, to address what everyone knows is going to be a revenue shortfall uh, to finish out the year. And then, of course, uh, what strategies are we going to uh, take uh, put in place for the next year? Really, the purpose of the meeting is sort of to set the table for the full Senate when it comes back the next week in terms of what the focus will be on, and that is on, uh, you know, figuring out our financial situation and the best solutions uh, that we have. Well, I understand you guys don't know exact figures yet, but um, you've got the April revenue collections in. Uh, I've heard yesterday Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally mention, um, you know, he thinks there could be a need to cut um, over a billion dollars for next year's budget. Um, where are you at? You know, where do you think these these figures are going to fall for? How much will need to be cut from this year's budget as well as next year's? Well, I think it's safe. You know, if we speak in ranges, I think it's it's probably fair to say that we know we're going to be somewhere between three hundred and fifty and five hundred million dollars short to finish out the current year, which ends June thirtieth. And then um, looking at and trying to project out the business slowdown and the impact on um, sales tax, it's reasonable to assume that we're probably going to be a little short or a little north of a billion dollars short the next year. So I think the lieutenant governor is right on the mark in terms of those are good numbers, at least starting points. Um, And hopefully uh, we uh, were wrong. And the shortfall isn't that great, but only as the year starts to play out will we get better numbers about that. And so with that in mind, what do you start to target when you're looking at the budget? You know, obviously anything that is, um, you know, possibly like a a short-term goal. Like I imagine one thing that might uh, go by the wayside is the the start of the ESA launch. That's uh, 30-some-odd million dollars um, that could, you know, be used elsewhere. What other areas could be looked at? Right. Well, I think the first thing you do is you learn from past experience. And so we, you know, at least those on the Senate Finance, we've looked back at the 
the Bredesen recession and what they did and uh, passed his prologue to, po- to quote Shakespeare. Uh, so I think you'll see, and, and the way this will work is at first, the first step is the administration will bring forth what they're they think the best plan is, and then the legislature will have an opportunity to uh, respond to that. But obviously, in times past, they look at the rainy day fund. They look at um, all of the different fund balances, uh, reserves that are uh, available um, to use. Uh, They look at uh, eliminating uh, any new spending for any new kind of programs. They look at um, hiring freezes, which we're currently in. Uh, they look at um, uh, pay raise reductions. Uh, they look um, at early retirements. So they go through the same. I mean, there's nothing new here in terms of, <clears throat> of strategies. They look through the same buckets. It's just how much is in each of those buckets at the, this time versus back in 07. Do you have any concerns? And, and you know, obviously this is a difficult one because – going into this you didn't really know the size of of the hole that we would be in but over the last few years there have been several efforts to you know cut some of the revenue streams whether it's cuts to the privilege tax or cuts to the food tax or whatever it may be you know are you concerned that some of those maneuvers will leave the state in a uh, a more difficult position than the Bredesen recession years no uh, because the economic challenge that we have is not due to economic reasons. What I mean is, is that this, this, this has been caused by a health care issue. The economic fundamentals that the state was operating on were obviously uh, very successful and very effective. And so I don't believe that those, those principles were wrong. But obviously, when you get hit with something like this, as unexpected as it is, you're going to have to struggle uh, for a bit of time before you get back on your feet. But I feel like that when we get when when the economy does start to recover, that the fundamentals we put in place will actually bear the same, if not more fruit than they've been bearing for us up to this point. So this is a self. I mean, the 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 problem, the financial problem that we have is is self-imposed. We've created it for ourselves. It's not because of, you know, a recession or a, uh, a standard recession or a financial problem. It's simply due to a healthcare issue that needed to be addressed. Hmm. The, the good news is, is that I think that, you know, as compared to many other states, um, while we're going to take a pretty good beating uh, uh, for a bit, uh, there are other states that, uh, you know, are far worse off now. Other states being far worse off doesn't make our situation any better, uh, but I do think we have the resources in place that if we make really good decisions over the next several months, that that in in a year uh, or so, you know, we'll be back um, churning the way we were uh, when we finished uh, uh, when, when we were coming back into session in January. You and I have talked about this in the past, but I want our listeners to understand. How significant are these decisions that you think will be made in the next, let's say, you know, two to four weeks? Um, how big of a deal are they for the state? Yeah, I think the decisions that we make over the uh, the next uh, several weeks uh, will uh, have, you know, implications for the next the three to five years. Um, we've got to be, you know, we've got to make sure that we 
um, we focus on the essentials of government and we make sure that they're properly funded to the best of our ability. But we don't um, get away from some of the, while we may not be able to fund some of the plans that we have in place, uh, we don't let those go away because we have, we've strategically, we've done a really good job in Tennessee over the past uh, several years positioning ourselves financially um, as well as from a policy perspective. So I think while there may be some things that we won't be able to do this year, we've got to keep those things on the top shelf because they're going to be really important in the in the outer years. The other thing that I'd say, Joel, is I think that, that Tennesseans understand where we are because m- many Tennesseans are experiencing the same thing, right? We've got record levels of unemployment, uh, people that had uh, plans that they were going to Uh, vacations and other things that they were going to do in the coming year they're not going to be able to do because of financial uh, restrictions i think they understand the state's perspective and they would expect us to you know make some of these tough decisions about uh, how we keep our uh, state's uh, uh, physical uh, house uh, in order and you know we'll we'll make some tough decisions but again i think we'll leave in place a structure that will allow us to recover fairly well once the clouds start to clear Two last quick things. What's, in yep. your estimation, the length of time that the legislature should be in session? Well, that's a – obviously the House and Senate may have different perspectives on this. I think we should be in session the length of time it, it, it takes us uh, to put together a financial plan that uh, stabilizes the state financially and allows us to finish out this year uh, balanced and allows us to finish out next year balanced. And however long that takes – uh, is the time I think we can do it in you know in in a couple of weeks, uh, but others obviously have uh, opinions about other matters that we ought to be taking up. I'm going to focus on the financial side of things and making sure that Tennesseans can be confident that their state is uh, financially stable and prepared to endure the struggle that we're about to embark. And then, uh, real quick, the the Senate, from what I could tell, uh, would like the the session to take place sort of like it did in March, the last week. Um, that you guys were in, uh, where the public is not there, uh, largely due to, you know, uh, spreading the virus concerns, and also to drill down and focus on sort of the uh, bare essentials. Why, in your view, is that the right move? Well, part of it is just the logistics of the facility where we have our committee meetings and controlling for uh, social distancing and all the different safeguards that we're trying to maintain both for ourselves and for the public. So much of it is just a logistical problem in terms of uh, when you have as many people um, as we have. And we, and we have a, an obligation to protect the staff there as well as we try and work through, uh, again, the guidelines of social distancing and limited exposure. Um, so I think that's why I think it's the right decision. The other thing is that, you know, we do have a lot of public access, um, whether it's through technology. Um, you know, we have online streaming. I know there's a little bit of delay with that. Uh, but I think there are plenty of opportunities and ways in today's world. And quite frankly, one thing that the, um, the shutdown has created is has accelerated the utilization of technology in all aspects of our lives. And I would anticipate that over the, uh, the coming years that you will see a, a, a greater and greater integration of technology in our communication 
um, in the legislature as well. So, but it's mainly because I just think the logistics of the building. We have limited number of elevators. If you're going to get six feet of distancing between folks on the elevators, and you only have two people on the elevator at a time, maybe three. If you can only do that, then how do you move people about? How do you ensure all that? There are just so many logistical problems trying to maintain those guidelines. Well, I appreciate your time, Senator, and uh, good luck next week. That's it for this week's podcast. Again, we hope to be back next week. I hope uh, Natalie will be with me. Um, Neither one of us is going to be on furlough for a little bit, so we're going to be covering this session uh, in its entirety. Uh, We plan on recording more podcasts and and being more frequent. We apologize for the near two-month absence that we had. Uh, It did offer a lot of uh, time to think about other ways that we can work on this, but also get feedback from a lot of people. Uh, In the interim, we appreciated all of the requests for more episodes. It was really nice uh, to hear so many people um, really express their thoughts on and and share their encouragement uh, for the podcast. Again, you can find us on Tuesdays, wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes, Spreaker, uh, Spotify, uh, wherever it may be. You can find us on Twitter uh, at Grand Divisions 3. This podcast has been produced by John Garcia. I'm Joel Ebert. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.